This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. As regards innovation, it's a very hard one to identify in a mechanical sense in terms of what are the ingredients. What I draw out of is that if you look at the top 10 most innovative countries, eight or nine are small, open, globalized countries. So Singapore, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Ireland, etc. They're all quite different, but they have a similar approach in that they have a very solid basis of laws, of institutions, very good education systems. They're very alert to the fact that they're small and they're exposed to the outside world. But as you say, they kind of do let innovation just take hold in and of itself. I've seen this, I guess, through friends of mine who have brought front office prime services desks from London to Dublin in order to get home. And they just said, right, my job doesn't exist. I got to figure out a way to actually create that job in Ireland. And it, it took them five years, but they did it. And then because one bank did it, then the rival bank said, hold on, should we be doing that? And then they're now looking at it and so on. So this diaspora piece, I think, is, is something that Ireland plays, not overtly, but quite subtly, but it, it's this homing pigeon device. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Longtime listeners of this show won't be surprised to hear that I spent way too much time than is normal focusing on the recent tax proposal endorsed by the G20. A quick summary. The G20 finance ministers backed a framework for international tax reform that would, among other things, create a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. The idea behind the agreement is to avoid a race to the bottom where countries offer low tax rates in order to attract corporations. Now, historically, this behavior has led to multinationals paying relatively low taxes, something that's increasingly become a point of scrutiny in public discourse. Despite 131 countries agreeing to this historic accord, there are some who have been outspoken in their opposition. Ireland, a country known for a tax regime that attracted the European headquarters of Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Pfizer, among others, is pushing back and is one of only nine countries that didn't sign onto the framework. Rather, the Irish government is partnering with other low-tax nations to advocate for terms that would allow for small countries to make up for the loss of tax advantages. As the country with the most high-value foreign direct investment flows, this proposal could have significant implications on the Irish economy, which has long prioritized attracting multinational corporations. In fact, foreign-owned multinationals employ almost 25% of the private sector labor force and pay 80% of the corporate tax collected in the country. Now, this wasn't always the case. Many listeners will be at least vaguely familiar with the Irish potato famine, the period in the mid-1800s, where infestation, ruined crops, led to the death of almost 1 million people and the mass emigration of another million people, including to the United States, where they were most often greeted with discrimination and severely limited job opportunities. In 1922, after Ireland gained independence from the United Kingdom, the country saw high tariffs, 
protectionist policies in a heavily agricultural economy, struggling to keep up with growth elsewhere, which again led to mass emigration. By the early 1990s, Ireland was among the poorest Western European countries. But starting 1995, the economy boomed, with a GDP growth rate of 7.8 to 11.5% over the next five years. This earned the economy the title Celtic Tiger, a reference to the high growth for Asian tigers that experienced similar high growth in the latter half of the 20th century. And this growth was, of course, no accident. In addition to low corporate tax rates, the Irish government introduced a number of pro-business regulations. Their Industrial Development Authority offered generous incentives and support, including everything from research, development, innovation grants, to site visit support, assistance with legal, visa, recruitment, property requirements. They put a huge emphasis on training and retaining tech talent. Several initiatives, including targeted skills action plans, on-the-job training programs, and funding and highly desired skill sets, and of course, created a positive feedback loop. Talent attracted top companies, which in turn attracted top talent. Even despite the Irish financial crisis of 2008-2013, Dublin today is a major European financial services center with the 37.8 hectare international services center on one side of the river and the so-called silicon docks on the other. And it seems like no wonder that Ireland is now home to the top five software companies, 14 of the 15 top medical tech companies, 10 out of 10 of the top pharma companies, and more, creating a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. So... What might this new tax agreement mean for a country that's had such a deliberate strategy for attracting investment and innovation? We'll speak today to two individuals who are deeply familiar with Ireland and can shed light on these policies and their consequences. First, we're joined by Michael Sullivan, an investor and writer who was the former CIO in the International Wealth Management Division of Credit Suisse, as well as an independent member of Ireland's National Economic Social Council from 2011 to 2016. He's also the author of The Leveling, which outlines what's next in politics, economics, finance, and geopolitics in the post-globalization era. We'll then bring in Lori Kehoe, the Director of Digital Assets and Blockchain at Bank of New York Mellon and the founder of Blockchain Ireland. But first, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hello, Sheila. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you. I mean, what a week and weekend it's been yet again. I say that every week, but it never ceases to be accurate. <laughs> no, I mean, it's waiting for summer to like let things cool down a little bit so that I could just relax. Yeah, we at Coindesk have been extremely busy this week. Gary Gensler in particular made that. So his yeah. first almost coming out speech six months into his administration of the SEC, finally coming out and giving a major policy speech uh, yesterday at the Aspen Security Institute's uh, forum. Well, as if we needed a reminder that policy really is going to shape this ecosystem uh, around blockchain and crypto, and, and we all need to be keeping a very close eye on what's happening in those spaces, and of course, where we can, trying to make sure that the policy that's made is based on accurate understandings of both the technical innovation and the opportunity, of course, as well as the challenges and risks. Yeah, actually, one of the things that I think was important and relevant to the conversation we're going to have against the speech yesterday as well is to think about, he talked about securities laws being handled from a jurisdictional basis rather than an international one. And you think that's, you know, that's kind of natural. Each country has their own securities commissions and, and agencies. But he sort of was acknowledging that there needs to be more cooperation on the international sphere because of the regulatory arbitrage that is playing out in the crypto space. So obviously something that's completely uh, on target with the conversation we'll be having today. Yeah. And so that gets back to, I think, the G20's attempt to create this consistent tax policy across multiple jurisdictions. And of course, the consequences of that are, are potentially quite profound. So 
So let's turn to our guest. Let's bring in Mike first. And we're going to go with Mike for Michael Sullivan and Michael for Michael Casey, just so to clarify, so we know who we're talking to. We've got a little bit of that going on today. So Mike, you know, maybe you can walk us through how tax policy has kind of worked and maybe start with talking to the double Irish. This was something that got a lot of attention back in the day. And I wouldn't say it's directly the reason, of course, that the G20 is, is going the direction that, it, that it's going with this yep. new proposal. But certainly, I think there's some relationship there. So maybe you can walk us through that history a bit. And just to start and give you a bit of context. So the Apple plant is over there. EMC is that way. And Pfizer is there. So just to make the point that they are not sort of brass plaque companies, they employ thousands of people here, have, have huge plants. But it did start to an extent with tax. You mentioned the the double Irish, which was a tax loophole, which made it very advantageous for US companies to locate in Ireland. And in a way, that was sort of the seed that got them in. I think the point I'd be quite keen to make is that you know, low tax is just part of the, the recipe, the secret sauce. Lots of other things as well. We have a, a sort of a commercial culture that's probably very common to the States. I think that's helped in terms of setting the, the range for the, the new tax rate. Ireland is now the only official English-speaking country in Europe. Education is good. And also, I think in the European context, for a long time, many other European countries sort of shot themselves in the foot and really failed to, to try to attract investment into their own countries. And Ireland did the opposite. We have a very, very good institution called the IDA, which you, you've rightly mentioned. They're really good. So tax has sort of been the seed. Lots of other things have come into the recipe. Many of them have flourished. I'm actually quite confident that Ireland can move to a, a higher corporate tax rate and sustain that because of all the other factors. And because there's so much now path dependence, there's just such a big presence of you know, fintech payment companies, technology companies, medtech, et cetera. So it really is a sort of a hub for all this in Europe now. I would agree with that. It certainly seems there's so much gravity to Dublin as just a financial services center and really kind of a, a tech entrepreneurial and innovation center. And so it's interesting that this particular movement of this G20 tax policy is something that Ireland is resisting because you don't really unring the bell. Once you have all that talent in a place and, and you have kind of an ecosystem like that, it would seem that that isn't something that is going to easily go away. But Laurie, I'd love to get your thoughts on just uh, the Irish entrepreneurial ecosystem as a general matter and the fact that there is now not just the attraction of international talent, but also a tremendous amount of, of Irish talent, of homegrown, if you will, talent that is now staying in the country uh, as opposed to emigrating and finding that there's so much opportunity to be had. So I'd love just your comments on, first, how you think the tax policy as the seed that Mike noted as kind of a hook has then led to this very thriving and vibrant ecosystem? Yeah, look, I think those comments are spot on. What we saw, I guess, um, was Ireland back in the 80s make a, make a play in terms of financial services. So um, the Irish Financial Services Centre, the IFSC, was created by a couple of people realising, I guess, the, the proximity to London, the importance of financial services, and a way to, I guess, set up businesses here that would, I guess, complement activities in New York, right? In New York's five hours time zone, so it's not eight hours or 10 hours, um, I guess, over to, to California, or as we get, go over to Singapore, or Hong Kong, it's also the same time zone as London, where, you know, an easy kind of three or three and a half hour flight, you know, from door to door to get to, to the city. And so that became an attractive opportunity, I think, for entities to look at Dublin. That was really, I think, a bet that was placed. And truth be told, so back in the 80s to, to where we are today in 2021, and hopefully for many years to come, 
we're we're ex- we're still experiencing um, and me personally by working for BMY Mellon are experiencing the benefits of that and we've seen it flourish so that was kind of a very important part of the story i think what we saw then was we saw technology companies enter the fray so in the early 2000s we had i guess google join and maybe that was a, a toe in the water and and maybe that indeed was the tax hook but then they i guess you know they liked what they saw they saw talent and they saw, I guess, high productivity rates with the likes of one tech company and other tech companies then started to, to look and say, hey, what's going on there? Should we set up there? And one followed another. And then if we flash forward again to where we are today, exactly to your point, one side of the river, we have kind of lots of global banks. The other side of the river, we have lots of tech companies that has resulted in a vibrant ecosystem and a fintech scene and a regtech scene, which is actually even stronger as a subset within the ecosystem here in Ireland or within the fintech ecosystem. What I would really say is that I think with Google, they have put down extremely strong roots in Dublin specifically. Um, so, so much so that it's rumored that they will be actually um, pedestrianizing a, a street in Dublin to facilitate the increase and sprawl of the Google campus. And um, so I think Maybe news will come out later in the year or next year on that one. But Google in Ireland is now nearly topping 9,000 people. And they are what we would certainly say would be top end and great jobs and very sought after jobs. Another important point, and I'll, I'll finish with this before I hog too much of the mic, but um, is also what we're seeing is the draw because Google's EMEA headquarters is in Dublin, there's a requirement for multiple languages to be spoken. So what we have is, you know, a range of sales roles, a range of support roles. So we're seeing people from, um, I guess, Spain, Italy, France, and Germany, and many other countries that speak lots of different languages come to Dublin because there's an opportunity to work with a LinkedIn, a Facebook, a Google, et cetera, et cetera, and be part of those companies and get a great job and a well-paid job and also a pretty secure job. I don't think those companies are, are going to be going bust anytime soon. So that in turn has been another, I guess, turn of the wheel to benefit the ecosystem because it's not just simply white Irish men. Um, we're getting people from all across Europe, from lots of different backgrounds, and they've actually helped change Dublin and Ireland to be a far more cosmopolitan city and country. So I'm going to take this as a little chance to indulge a little bit here, Sheila. So my question might take a little while just because I have to tell a story. Because <laughs> as you guys can tell by my last Go name. Go for it. I, okay. too, of an Irish descent. <laughs> I am truly really the odd Claire, one out on today's episode. County Clare, yeah. about 150 years ago, my family moved out to Australia. That's why my accent is what it is. I'm part of that exiting diaspora. I'm the product of it. That was for so long the story of Ireland, right? The emigre was the story. And I'll tell you a little anecdote that I think helped reinforce to me how much that had changed, precisely because of the scenarios that Laurie was just describing and you, Mike, alluded to as well. I wrote a book, weirdly enough, about another man of Irish descent. His name is Ernesto Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, from Limerick, I think. Or from Limerick, we flew, yeah. definitely flew through Limerick. I wrote a book about the image of Che Guevara, the famous photo. I'm not really a communist. I was writing a book about capitalism, really, the role of this image. And I went to a place in La Higuera, where Che was killed. He was killed there in 1967, and I was there for the 40th anniversary of his death. You know, this was a bizarre experience. Anyway, I, I had to share a taxi on the way back from La Higuera, this tiny little village to a place called Villanueva. And this weird taxi was imported from a place where they drove on the other side of the road. And so the taxi driver was driving on the right-hand side and I was watching the, the speedometers in front of me, which was just bizarre. 
Anyway, in the back of the seat with these two characters, one of them sounded like they had a, a Swedish accent and one sounded like an Italian accent, but both had this Irish brogue running through it. I was like, what, what do you guys do? And it turns out they both worked in a restaurant in Dublin. One was the chef and one was the waitress. And it's just, they'd been there for so long that their accents had morphed into this Italian, Irish and Swedish, Irish accents. And it just occurred to me, like, as I was sitting there as an Irish Australian, you know, covering this famous Irish Argentine, that something profound had changed in Ireland. What you guys are talking about is something that's really relevant to the crypto space in, with regards to this. It may start with policy, but it breeds all of this, this sort of innovation ecosystem, which then leads to all these knock-on effects, including the immigration of people into the country and the variety and the diversity and the ingenuity and innovation that comes out of that diversity once you've set that spark off. And it used to be that the world was distinguished by geographic features. And so big cities were built upon harbors and places that had, you know, Sydney, Australia is founded on the incredible harbor that they found, Jackson Harbor. And ultimately that became the defining feature of our world. But now we live in a, a largely digital world where differentiation across places is as much defined by policy opportunity. It's also defined by, you know, the people who are there and the innovation, the, the opportunity to innovate and the drive that comes from those economies. But these things are less connected to ge geography and more connected to the environment that is created for these things. So in that world, well, I suppose it's a question for you, Mike, more than anything else, because you've been really interested in this end of globalization. You know, globalization, I think sometimes is misunderstood as a bland normalization of everything, when in some respects it enabled these, these centers of innovation and growth to emerge and to compete with each other. Do we run the risk if we don't allow for these sparks of differentiation around policy in this case, and that definitely applies in the crypto world, if we don't let that, do we end up with everything sort of getting back to some sort of bland middle and we kill the idea of difference and innovation and everything that comes from that variety? That's a super question. So I'll try my best to answer it and to do so succinctly. What got me interested in globalization was I years ago wrote a book called Ireland and the Global Question, because this is maybe 10, 12 years ago, Ireland was the most globalized country in the world. It had undergone massive social, economic, political change, and it was building up all these imbalances as well. So I've kind of been attached to the whole idea since. And as a bit of context, and just to go back to what Laurie said, and probably will say about entrepreneurship in Ireland, I mean, when I left school, went to university in the late 80s, early 90s, setting up your own business in Ireland was, was out of the question. You were crazy if you were, if you were going to try it. The macro environment wasn't friendly. Interest rates like the States and, and elsewhere super high. So there was no culture of entrepreneurship, innovation. Ireland also was interesting. I think unlike other small countries like Switzerland and Sweden, it didn't have any economic history. If you look at the ratio of Irish GDP to that of Britain, it's been sort of 0.5 times since whatever, 1860, right up to about 1990, then changed dramatically. Now it's, it's much higher. Ireland is, is really enjoying its first big boom and obviously its first big bust of 10 years ago. And now another, I think, more sustainable boom. As regards innovation, it's a very hard one to identify in a mechanical sense in terms of what are the ingredients. What I draw out of is that if you look at the, the top 10 most innovative countries, eight or nine are small, open, globalized countries. So Singapore, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Ireland, etc. They're all quite different. 
but they have a similar approach in that they have a very solid basis of laws, of institutions, very good education systems. They're very alert to the fact that they're small and they're exposed to the outside world. But as you say, they kind of do let innovation just take hold in and of itself. That's actually harder to do than people think. And I'm uh, somewhat dismayed by the innovation policy in Europe, because in, in many of these areas, technology Europe is it's well behind China and the US. And there's a big conversation about Europe's strategic need to have artificial intelligence players, its own internet companies, its own major banks, and it doesn't have any of those. And there are obvious barriers to you know, capital markets, language, culture, etc. And I'm very pro-European and I want this to work out. But I think there's a huge policy misnomer in that some governments think that a very centralized and somewhat controlled approach of the state being intrinsically involved in innovation and directing it is going to work. And that's worked in some countries that are very centralized like France, but I don't think it works on a pan-European basis. And also, I don't think that a one innovation policy for all European countries is warranted either. I think each European country should be allowed the flexibility to create a kind of an, an innovative ecosystem across different industries. Tax is part of that, but I think R&D, education are much bigger parts. Okay, a similar question to you, Laurie. It seemed to be that you talked about this tax scenario being essentially the spark that led to all these other things happening. If it goes away, right? if it's removed, does the ecosystem survive? I mean, it's there now. I suppose the point is like, how important is tax to the kind of decisions that the Googles and the Pfizer's and, and everybody else make in this case, you know, even if it was the beginning of their decision? I think it is important, but I think it's a factor, not the factor, is the way I would put it. Commenting now very much as, as Laurie in a personal capacity, what I think is going on from an Ireland perspective when it comes to tax and negotiations that are taking place are a set of intense and detailed negotiations. Uh, a friend of mine and I were, were talking about this. It was never going to be the case that Ireland was going to simply agree to those terms immediately. What we're seeing are uh, intense negotiation. We're understanding, I guess, what is possible. And then what is the, the potential, I guess, midpoint for us to agree to, knowing that, and this is an important point where realistically, if we were to agree to a 15% tax rate quickly, what would happen is that's not to say that there wouldn't be a, a slide to then 17.5% in 12 or 24 or 36 months time. So we are seeing, I think, skilled politicians and negotiators trying to map out what is a likely outcome but also looking at the next step and the step after that, as this is a very complicated scenario and one which will play out over, over months and the years to come. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. I think it's such a good point. 
particularly once you have an ecosystem of talent, innovation, and entrepreneurship, you know, people, cities are not fungible. Geography is not fungible for people. They don't necessarily substitute one city for another. They build lives, they build connections, they build networks, you know, and, and clearly uh, Dublin, Ireland in particular, Ireland more generally, but Dublin specifically, you know, does have that infrastructure that's already been built up. So uh, I think it's a very fair point that the tax policy certainly remains attractive for multinational companies, but it isn't necessarily the driver anymore. Now, you know, you locate in Dublin because you know, to your, to the points you both have made, you're going to get access to this holistic ecosystem that's got, you know, everything from the office space to the talent, to the, you know, what the immigration policy, whatever else it is, it's going to enable you to basically have your company thrive. But let's, let's kind of back up a bit for some of our listeners who, who don't think about tax policy as much as I do. Um, just again, being some normal people. So how does this kind of system really work? So, so Mike, you walked us through the double Irish a bit. Just how do multinationals get taxed? What's the basis for assessment? Where do they get taxed in one country or another? Or is it both? Or, or how does all of that work? Maybe you can kind of outline that for us a bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fiendishly complex, which is why tax accountants and lawyers have paid, paid so much money. <laughs> so, I mean, what many of the multinationals have done is to set up entities in one country that's got an advantageous let's say, tax system. And it's often not so much the actual rate of tax, but it's the way in which you can sort of dance and maneuver around that. What you can do is in an accounting sense, you can transfer activity from one country to another. So Google will make sales in France, but there can be some kind of cross transfer of that activity and billing from an entity, let's say, in the, in the Isle of Man or, or Liechtenstein, etc., which reduces the tax bill in the higher tax country, and then you pay the tax in the, the lower tax destination. I mean, that's a very, very simplified way of doing it. There are lots of ways of writing off different activities in the value chain, R&D, et cetera, to different kinds of uh, tax breaks so that when you get the end tax bill, it's reduced in some cases to zero. Yeah. And I think to your point, you know, this is extremely complicated, but let's just pause there for one moment and I'll, I'll, I'll reframe that a little bit. So what some companies wind up doing is basically deciding where activity is happening, whether or not that activity is happening across multiple jurisdictions, they almost can assign it, this is being very simplistic, they can assign it to one particular jurisdiction or geography. They can domicile that activity within a particular jurisdiction and make the decision to do that. Those of you who are longtime listeners, you know, I'm a former tax mergers and acquisitions attorney, and a lot of the discussion and debate and negotiation was around the domiciling of various activities and where they sat. There's a very complicated system of treaties between countries that talk about, you know, the taxation of everything from how are employees taxed, are they double taxed in both jurisdictions or not? How is it domiciling? How can that some of that work? There's agreements around this. There's a very complex web of, of treaties and other kinds of agreement among countries. And part of what the G20 is trying to do is to simplify some of that, which I think is an admirable uh, attempt you know, to kind of do that. Uh, in part, I think the motivation, at least as stated in, certain, in some parts of the press, is to avoid some of the gaming of this system to reduce the amount of overall tax that is paid. Um, and so I think that, as we've said on the show many, many times, you know, tax is a driver and it does create incentives around behavior, both consumer behavior, but also corporate level behavior but also national behavior. It, recognizing that is, I think, critical. And that, of course, is distinct from discussions that we've had already about the follow-on consequences of being a relatively low-tax jurisdiction, which are that when companies domicile certain activities in a particular place, 
then of course they're going to invest some degree in activities there that then lead to these over time buildup of this tremendous community that then has its own momentum and gravity such that the tax policy is no longer to, I think, Lori's previous point, uh, the driver remains just kind of one of many factors uh, that if adjusted would necessarily change the desirability of that particular location. What's interesting as well, if you look at the companies, the large US multinationals who are accused of arbitraging these tax rules, these are core pillars of the sort of the geostrategic architecture of the US. I mean, those five companies make up 25% of the, the stock market. They are the pillars of the whole venture capital innovation ecosystem in the States. They're valued, I think, as sort of parts of America's overseas strategy. And they have, I guess, as agents of globalization, they've carried American influence uh, overseas. Probably is more of an American policy issue than it is a, an Irish one. What people miss also, I think, in the, in the Irish sense is that in their efforts initially uh, put in place a, a low tax regime. And I mean, the mantra that, that was driving Irish politicians because unemployment here was so high in the 80s and 90s was jobs. And this was seen as a way of getting in investment in and, and creating jobs, and that eventually there would be these spillover effects, etc. But it was actually the, the logic was employment rather than tax mm-hmm. at, the, at its base. Yeah, which makes perfect sense when you think about the history that I mentioned there. It has not been the case historically, thinking back, not, I mean, I suppose it's at this point 100 years back, but nevertheless, when you had these two massive immigration moments, it is not as if opportunities and doors were wide open you know, to Irish yeah. immigrants. Yeah. In fact, they were relegated to uh, less desirable jobs, which did not necessarily lead to wealth creation that could create a diaspora community that could support this kind of thing. This, of course, is something that we see. This is not a new story. We see this with wide variety of different emigres and, and diaspora communities that have a similar uh, thing that happens to them. They move to a different country. They're relegated to very low-income jobs. Uh, they maybe have trouble getting status or immigration to move to other, different kinds of jobs. Mm. And then that, in turn, affects their ability to support family back home, you know, et cetera. And all these things create a cycle that is highly problematic. And so I absolutely, the tax policy, if anything, was a lever because the focus was creating that uh, opportunity within Ireland to actually create this new uh, ecosystem and create more jobs and create job growth. Absolutely, right. If I can jump in there for a second, because it, it builds, I think, on points that everybody has made, which is, and you said the word there, which is diaspora. Those opportunities, when people graduate, as Michael said, they went to London or went to New York or went to Australia or Canada. And there was nothing to come home to, or they had spent so long away that their job just simply didn't exist in Ireland. And through, I guess, Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, Stripe as well, through all these companies setting up here, and also important to know about Brexit as well. Um, Brexit has brought opportunities to Dublin. I think depending on what you, you read, Dublin may be either the, the city that has benefited most or certainly in the top three from Brexit. So there's now jobs in Ireland, front office jobs, let's say in financial services or top end tech jobs, which are able to attract people back from New York after having spent 10 years in New York or 10 years in London. There's opportunities here now that simply weren't there before or jobs that pay equivalent rates to what people were accustomed to being paid in New York or London, as the case may be. And that brings talent, you know, obviously back to Ireland in the first instance. But then other people see, well, oh, they've gone there. Should I think about going home? And it has that kind of network effect to bring more and more people. And look, the same for everybody all over the world. The pull and draw back home is, I guess, the older you get, the stronger it gets. I've, I've actually unsuccessfully managed to leave Ireland, I guess, two or three times um, with, with my job. 
And for one reason or another, I've just gotten sucked back in. Look, very happily so. I don't want to say it's a bad place uh, by any means. But I've seen this, I guess, through friends of mine who, who've brought front office prime services desks from London to Dublin in order to get home. And they just said, right, my job doesn't exist. I got to figure out a way to actually create that job in Ireland. And it, it took them five years, but they did it. And then because one bank did it, then the rival bank said, hold on, should we be doing that? And then they're now looking at it and so on. So this diaspora piece, I think, is, a, is something that Ireland plays, not overtly, but quite subtly, but it, it's this homing pigeon device. It's so fascinating. You see this happening you know, all over the world, right? We, we had an episode previously of the show about the Nigerian fintech ecosystem and this mm-hmm. similar kind of phenomenon where you yeah. had a lot of Nigerians you know, who were uh, maybe going abroad, maybe for education or whatnot and coming back and they created this extraordinarily vibrant fintech ecosystem within Lagos, but also within Nigeria more generally. Uh, and it's, it's a similar phenomenon to what you're both describing. And I think that when, we, when you observe this at a global level and you think about uh, the implications and how some of these global policies are actually either uh, facilitating or impeding this ability to create economic opportunity within one's home country, the country that one feels called, you know, perhaps to, to go back to uh, and support. Uh, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that w- one of the points that keeps coming to me, we in this crypto blockchain space, the mantra of decentralization is one that, you know, you start off when you get into this space, then you start to think about it in all these different ways. What we talk about when we mean decentralized architecture or decentralized architecture and And just to give you one example of where you don't think about this typically, the U.S. electoral college system is a decentralized system that on the surface just seems nuts. And and in some respects, it's been very problematic in how it it has biased certain groups' power over others. But on the other hand, you start to see how in different ways, this strange way that the U.S. political system has a very strong center, but also these strong states, means that you get this variety in terms of policies, in terms of environments, and you never get the sort of homogenization of bureaucracy across the entire thing. There are opportunities to do blockchain in Texas, but there aren't in you know, California, for example, right? And so you know, Silicon Valley is now losing out to Austin, but that's part mm. of this, you know, the dynamism uh, that is created in, in the US. Now, you look at Europe and you know, the problem that Europe wanted to face, the Eurozone was we have too much difference in a way because we're always fighting with each other. So let's create some commonality and create a common currency that's going to create efficiencies and everything else. You know, and I think, I don't know if the jury's out or not, but it does seem as if it's certainly entrenched and it certainly has had its payoffs. But you, know, you guys were talking about, about your problems with some of Europe's policies. And then Laura, you mentioned Brexit as potentially something that's creating opportunities here because Brexit is a push away from that homogenization back to some sort of at least level of decentralization within the European frame. So what does this all mean for Ireland in terms of not just tax, but its geopolitical opportunities? How do you play these two big powers and and how do you try to sustain the dynamic innovation framework that you both described? Mike? So Ireland was recently, it was either on the cover or an inside article in The Economist, it was called Europe's or the world's sort of diplomatic kind of micropower or something, which worries me because whenever something makes the the cover of The Economist, it kind of goes the (laughs) other way. Um, But having said that, I think one thing we in Ireland underestimate is the ability of our diplomats. I personally think they they did a brilliant job of Brexit. I mean, it's a process where there were very few winners, but I think Ireland did did very well. And as a result of that process, it became 
politically much, much closer to Europe. Culturally, we're still, and we kind of fool ourselves that we're kind of, we can be a bit American, we can be a bit close to the, the Brits, we can be European. But for me, politically, it shifted Ireland firmly into the, the European camp, where I think we still have an advantage because particularly with the Biden, not just the, the president himself, but the people around him, that there, there are many Irish Americans. So we, we kind of have a foot firmly in Europe uh, with very, very strong ties uh, to the states. And again, that's been important in, in all of these debates over tax. So I, I think what Ireland has to do now is maybe sort of two or three things. I think culturally it has to follow where it's gone politically. Young people in Ireland need to speak European languages, maybe do so in a kind of a more fun way, spend more time in, in, in Europe. I think Ireland, in terms of its, its stock of power as a small country, it should pick maybe two or three things on the European stage where it can lead and contribute. And one of those, I think, is in this theory we're talking about, you know, the future of money, the future of capital markets in Europe. That's a, a stalled project. And there's all this grand talk at the same time about, you know, digital identity, digital central bank currency coming from the ECB. But there's loads of groundwork needs to be done. So I, I would love to see Ireland take the lead in that and, and be sort of the pioneer and really drive that project. And then the third thing where I think Ireland has got something to teach the rest of Europe. So, you know, my kind of adopted country or my second country, sorry, France growth this year will be 2%. In the year ahead in Ireland, it's going to be 15%. Ireland has a lot to teach other European countries about growth. That's the thing that worries me about Europe is not the, the euro, but that there's no growth mentality across European political leaders. And there is in Ireland, uh, and you can see the, the fruits of it. I imagine that gives you some leverage as well. Like you said, you've, you've, like you're, you've shifted towards Europe, but at the same time, this success in Brexit gives you some leverage, which I suppose, you know, means, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can actually sort of like differentiate a little bit around tax policy. You're a banker, Laurie. Um, we just talked about digital currencies there, you know, came up, uh, Mike referenced that. I mean, any thoughts on how these new technologies, right? It's one that's close to our heart, what our, what our podcast is mostly about is these new technologies of money. How does that impact the way that countries are going to be able to arbitrage or not? And then also multinationals arbitrage or not their tax decisions, you know, because money itself is going to become more fluid, at least. Yeah, and I think what I would say is that all of these concepts are being closely examined. So I'm fortunate to work for a global bank where we have teams of people in pockets all around the world understanding and keeping a close eye on, all, let's say, all these central bank digital currencies. What do they mean? How far along the journey are they? And from a, a bank perspective, what do they mean for us? What do they mean for our clients? What are the opportunities associated with them? And what are the challenges? So. My view on this is that, looking at the digital euro for a moment, it's a case of when, not if. But in terms of time frame, it came out a couple of weeks ago that if the digital euro was to proceed past the, I guess, the research stage, build would begin in 2026. In a past life working as a management consultant, I guess, building a system of that nature across 27 countries will not happen quickly. So that's really going to be the back end of the decade, maybe even into the next decade. You know, if we're looking at that, you know, we're a little past halfway through 2021, I definitely call that long term. And especially in blockchain and crypto and DLT land, which we live, that feels like a very long time away, right? As you guys said at the top of the show, a week is a long time in, in the world in which we live, let alone a decade. 
So I think these things are going to happen, but it, it will be s- slow. I think our governments and the policymakers, they have, the, I guess, their respective foot on the gas or accelerator pedal, and they'll be the people that determine exactly how this plays out and when it plays out. And it's, I guess, our job to stay really close and to try and also not, not just understand the policy pieces, but also the technical considerations. Like, for example, what are the token types? Is it going to be something akin to a, an NFT, an ERC-721? Is it going to be a brand new token standard? And then I think what's important for, I guess, all the, the tech ecosystem to understand is to ensure that they can facilitate and custody those token types and that their systems enable and allow for them. So that's a big part of the job as well, is just to stay close to the, the emerging tech side of things. One of the other things that you said there as well, Michael, in relation to the question that you put to Mike, I think, you know, where's this going for Ireland? And I think it's really important to say that, you know, when I saw that, that tax announcement, it made me take a step back and go, okay, I've been thinking about this for a while. And I think a lot of people in Ireland have anyway. So it wasn't like a bolt completely out of the blue. But it's actually an important thing because I think we need to move and have another string to our bow, not saying that we only have one string and that is tax, but we need to have other things that we can hang our hat on. One of the things that I think we need to do more of, right, and I think the government is is trying to do this through the support of the, the European Union, is to have more Irish businesses. So look, we mentioned Stripe and Google and, yeah. and, and so on and so on. What we need to do is to figure out, well, how does Ireland create the next Google, you know, and the next LinkedIn? How do we create that environment? I have to say there's a, there's a great study by folks I'm, I'm working with, so Dr. Paul Ryan and Dr. Julio Bajuni, who are from the Trinity Business School. And they did a fantastic study looking at this in a part of Western Ireland, Galway, where they did a piece of research to assess over a period of time. So medtech companies came to Ireland, they came, they employed people, which was great. But their question research really was about what benefit did that have to create new indigenous, you know, Irish businesses? And then in turn, if new businesses were created, were more businesses created from that? And so did it just continue to create this virtuous cycle? of new employment, new businesses. And effectively, long story short, and spoiler alert for everybody, right? What they found within that sector, in that part of Ireland, was that it had that positive result. So American company came in, Irish business was created, and then more Irish business were created, not to compete with the likes of a giant Pfizer or a Merck or an Eli Lilly or whoever it is, but complementary businesses to fit within that ecosystem. I'm fortunate enough as well to be working with them to do a PhD on a similar topic in Dublin to look at companies in this part of Ireland over in the East Coast. So looking at, I guess, the likes of Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn and so forth to understand when they come here, do they create Irish businesses? And if the answer is that, you know what, they don't create as many as they could, then the question really is, how do we create those opportunities or what's the gap? So what happens in Silicon Valley versus what happens in Dublin? And how do we create that gap so new businesses are being created? You said it as well, Michael, you said it around that innovation piece. We need to figure out what's happened elsewhere. How do we capture those ingredients? And I think if you look at Silicon Valley, it's what? It's about that mix between academia, that mix between corporates, that mix between government. It's not as if it's an incredibly secret sauce, but they seem to get it right, certainly more often than not. What we need to do in Ireland is we need to do something similar. I have about a billion follow-ups, Lori, but we're, we're getting close to, to the end of our session. There's one thing I just want to raise to both of you that, that I do think is, is a bit orthogonal to what we've been talking about, which is, you know, with the pandemic, we've seen the rise of remote workforces and increasingly global workforces and kind of work from anywhere and whatnot. 
how does that play into this whole scenario, right? Because here we're talking about how does any country or city or any community really kind of create gravity, an ecosystem to spur, you know, talent and the desire of talent to kind of stay and all of that. Is that eroded by the fact that now a lot of people, you really can in many cases work from anywhere. And if you're willing to kind of adjust your time zones a bit to meet those of your colleagues, it might be in a very different jurisdiction. That is something we're seeing a lot of opening up to, particularly when it comes to tech. And of course, specifically when it comes to blockchain, we know that a lot of crypto, you know, exits uh, have happened after people have redomiciled, if you will, to other places that have extraordinarily low personal capital gains or whatever it might be so that they can realize some of that income without getting that, that tax hit. How does that play into all of this? I, really for either of you. The thing I can say in Ireland's favor is it's, it's a wet, but it's a fun place to live. So, <laughs> I, I can confirm that. That's my favorite <laughs> so I think people may, may still want to be located here. I mean, as far as I can see so far, and I think we're just beginning to get a purchase on many of the new trends of the post-COVID era. This effect is, is a particular one within countries. So it's people actually relocating from Paris to Bordeaux or from Berlin back down to Munich or Dublin to Galway, that sort of thing. People, I think, in many cases are still quite rooted. What would be interesting is to see the extent to which companies feel a need to rebuild cultures. And I think you can do that really only when people are present and you have social infrastructure as well. It's a very important part of Irish life. So I think it would be a pity to see that go. I think there's a big opportunity there for governments in countries like Ireland to have a more coherent decentralization policy because Dublin is very concentrated and you can see that in traffic jams, property prices, a within country policy challenge for many countries. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And I think, you know, I guess friends of mine are in their 20s and, and working for Google, as the case may be. And then friends of mine are in their 30s and 40s, you know, different life stages, kids come along, family, etc. So people obviously in their 20s want to be in the city and they're attracted to Dublin because, you know what, within half an hour, you can be up in the Dublin mountains overlooking the city or you can be kite surfing, you know, pretty quickly and easily with a wetsuit. I will put that disclaimer. Um, but I think or, or a lot of Guinness in your belly that'll, that'll be good <laughs> also true and then I think to Michael's point exactly I think what you're seeing is for folks who have families they're going you know what I can now live on the west coast of Ireland I can actually wake up in the morning and look at the Atlantic Ocean and if needs be I can go up and down to Dublin you know once a week or once every couple of weeks so I actually really do see that happening more and more I think what we're seeing is the birth of co-working hubs and locally run co-working hubs. So less so the WeWorks or the Huckle Trees and more so county council or town-backed mm. co-working hubs, yeah. which are obviously, you know, state and county sponsored, which then makes the, the island of Ireland more attractive as a place to be rather than just everything being in Dublin, as Michael said. So we are running tight on time, but I just want to wrap this up with one little uh, sort of way that ties the point I made at the very beginning to some stuff that you were talking about, Laurie, and just get your response to it. And that is, you know, you talk about digital assets being the next potential big thing that Ireland should go for. It's made all these moves strategically over time. We're seeing this in a number of different jurisdictions around the world. Like we've had Bermuda, we had the premier of Bermuda on the show. And, you know, Bermuda is making a very deliberate decision around certain crypto policy structures, you know, to create sandboxes and things deliberately for this reason. But an integral part of the policy is not just, oh, we're going to promote this as crypto. We need to do something that differentiates us policy-wise from somewhere else. It's not to say you're going to be an outer rebel, but you do something. 
I'm just wondering, like with now this prospect sitting in front of Ireland and the fact that tax harmonization around the world does seem to be coming, is there a pivot to use the Silicon Valley word here for the Irish government to make away from, say, tax differentiation toward some other form of fintech crypto policy type differentiation? In the context of that, is there a concern that just having heard Gary Gensler talk about the need for more harmony uh, around the world, that this is in itself going to be a challenge for Ireland to map that path? How does a country build a digital assets ecosystem of the kind you're alluding to and not run afoul of the United States right now? I've got a few thoughts. So one country is doing it, Switzerland. They've been very, very quick. They've, they've been the the developed country that's been the most aggressive in setting up all the, the regulatory sandboxes, the infrastructure, et cetera. They've been able to do it because I think they have a, a very well-equipped and staffed regulatory landscape. They have a, a lot of banks, a deep banking culture. So it's been, in a way, it's been easy for them to do it. They also have a location that people trust and there are lots of inflows of money. And, and somewhat ironically, they have one of the most stable currencies. And normally what we see is that countries that try and adopt digital central bank currencies or where you have a lot of Bitcoin activity are those weak economies and weak currencies. Ireland's quite different to Switzerland. Its domestic banking sector is not a strong one. I think there's maybe two areas for Ireland to focus on. One is the, the infrastructure behind many of the new currencies. Because it's a big issue, but you have to be a bit like a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and sort of stick the dart in a particular sector or sub-industry. I think if you can try and focus on broad infrastructure, you can put more resource to work in terms of human capital, and you stand less chance of being disrupted. And then the other one, which I think goes back to the previous point, is to play a really big role in the digital euro. And there's lots of plumbing and infrastructure needs to be built, lots of rules, regulations need to be crafted. And there's no reason why Dublin or Cork shouldn't be one of the centers of activity for that than, say, say Frankfurt. Uh, Laurie, final thoughts on this? In some ways, no surprises. I think the education piece is really important. How many years ago now? It was over two years ago, we developed and had the master's in blockchain by Dublin City University. Now nearly every university and college in the country is, uh, has a module or has a course dedicated to it. So I think that's a really important piece. Number two, I think the ecosystem is here. That's the, that's the piece, right? So Circle, Gemini, Kraken, Revolut, the ones that I mentioned already, then that means other players that are looking to the space are going, well, where are Coinbase, Gemini, Revolut, Kraken? And then they go, they're in Dublin. Should we be in Dublin is the natural question. And then they do their homework and they decide whether it is the place to be. So that existing toehold or foothold that we have from those existing players is, is powerful. It's a draw. And um, I think then what you have as well from the players is that you have people who have worked in those companies. So that leads on to the talent piece. So as a new entrant comes in, whether it is an Aave or a, a compound or a sushi swap, whatever you want to look at, they're looking for people who have crypto and digital asset experience. And then you look at where is that kind of nucleus or talent pool in Europe? Well, where is Coinbase? And you're back to that piece. Well, they're in Dublin. Should we go there? And then I think also we, we look at, I guess, regulation. And, and look, it's, a, it's an important piece of this puzzle. Ireland is being, I, I think the, the term that I would say is probably being passive um, when it comes to, to regulation, but it has done some things. It's done something quite well. One of them is that it brought out the virtual asset service provider um, regulation, which is if you enter into or act basically in the digital asset space, 
you have to apply to become what's known as a VASP. And this was actually initially, uh, I guess, received by the overall digital asset community as, oh, here we go, this is going to be a big drawn out process. But actually, feedback that I've received over the last few weeks has been that the important thing is it provides clarity. So what was once before gray and you don't know where you stand, that piece of regulation was actually, it makes it clear, this is what you need to do. These are the steps you need to follow. And therefore, they are the rules. And that has been well received. Um, And I think that's what you'll continue to see. Obviously, this is my speculation. Uh, My belief is that you'll continue to see that from, um, I guess, the the regulatory environment in Ireland. You're not going to see big bang approval of everything. That's not the way it's going to work. Absolutely not. But what you will see will be slow, careful, considered regulation, um, which will, I think, enable um, digital assets and and enable Ireland to become a global digital asset hub. Well, thank you both. There's definitely lessons there, Lauren, what you just said. I think for many other jurisdictions around the world, how do we ensure that really uh, regulation is a result of that careful, considered process that is considering all of the different consequences that might arise, not the least of which is, as we've seen with this kind of tax policy that led, whether through meandering or direct line, you know, to the creation of this vibrant, thriving ecosystem uh, within uh, the country of Ireland and within the city of Dublin itself and whether we see regulation that perhaps while well-intentioned in other jurisdictions might wind up stifling innovation in a way that perhaps sends talent going to other places, uh, maybe even to Dublin. So uh, lots of lessons, I think, uh, here to learn from the Irish experience and and the policies that the, the government has put into place over the course of time. Thank you both. We go on forever, but thank you so much to our guests for educating us today. Michael Sullivan, Laurie Kehoe, Real pleasure to have you on. And of course, thanks to my co-host, Michael Casey. Uh, Join us next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Michael Sullivan, and Lori Kehoe. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thank you.